Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Dr. Konechly is, is um, a renowned transplant surgeon and is the director of solid organ transplant here at Duke University. He trained initially, was that general surgery or was that yes, general, general, general surgery. surgery at Duke? Back when general surgery at Duke was notorious for being one of the most intense training programs uh, in the country. Um, he has uh, gone on, obviously, to be a transplant surgeon, uh, worked at uh, University of Wisconsin, also at Emory University, came back uh, to Duke, to our delight, about three years ago. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Konechly and, and uh, his wife, Mary Banks Konechly, who's a, a nurse, who's uh, been quite involved in parish nursing in the past. Um, they have three sons, uh, at least one of which is back in the area. And again, we're delighted to have you, Dr. Knackley, and I'll turn it over to you. And well, this is a, as you, I can't remember if you've been able to join us for one of these before, but very much an informal setting, so you may get interrupted with questions along the way. Well, please do. Please interrupt <laughs> with questions or comments at any time. And uh, I've met some of you, I believe, and not uh, all of you. But uh, I guess my understanding of the time that you have together is to reflect on the meaning of uh, work in medicine and to how we integrate our faith into our practice and uh, what an honor it is to be able to think about that and to have a privilege to think about it together. Um, this is not something that is uh, low down on Maslow's scale, I think. You, you have to have a privileged life to even have a time to think about this uh, question. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is a privilege and one that I've tried to ask myself over time. So. I thought that I would uh, ask you to uh, just uh, take a time out for a second. We start surgery with a time out. I'm going to ask you to take a, a prayer time out with me while we uh, just uh, ask the Lord for guidance. Because this is not the type of talk that I commonly give. In fact, I've never given a talk like this. So uh, this is a little bit of a new exercise for me. So just uh, join me in prayer for a minute. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of life for calling us by name to follow you and for giving meaning to our lives. Help us to understand you better and your calling better. And I pray that you'd give each person in this room a better understanding of your call in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. So as far mentioned, I'm a liver transplant surgeon and I thought I would open with just an example positive example of what it's like to be a liver transplant surgeon. Uh, when I was a medical student, when I was even a resident, I didn't really know what it would look like in, in the future. I had, you know, some inkling. Liver transplantation for me was uh, kind of a dream when I was in that medical school. Uh, I am in a very young field. Uh, all of transplantation, solid organ transplantation, has been developed in my lifetime. Okay, that's a young field in medicine. Medicine's been around for quite a few millennia, and uh, liver transplantation and kidney transplantation have not been around. The first successful kidney transplant was 1954. The first successful liver transplant was 1967. 
okay. So I was born two years after the first successful kidney transplant. Mm -hmm. so, but uh, almost all of this field developed pretty much in the 1980s and afterward. Before that was the rare event that made the news. And now transplants are commoditized. And everybody knows somebody who's had a transplant of one form or another. But anyway, uh, let me tell you what I, uh, about a recent case, and, and this is not something terribly out of, out of the usual, but I'll tell you what was unusual about the case. I'm going to tell you about a little fellow named Zeni Machingura. His father is African, and his mother is, uh, is uh, uh, Caucasian. I met this couple in uh, Atlanta. I was at the time the director of transplantation at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. It's one of the largest pediatric systems in the United States. And so we had a very large pediatric liver transplant program. Zinni was born with a condition called gestational alloimmune liver disease. And I won't go into the immunology of that because that's not the right uh, form for doing that. But it's an unusual immune form of liver destruction that begins in utero. So when he was born, it's also called neonatal hemochromatosis, by the way. But uh, we have a way to prevent this now. But uh, he was born with full-blown liver failure. So this is a, a newborn kid who weighs about uh, 3.2 kilograms. That's a tiny baby. And uh, he's yellow and big belly. And uh, laboratory values reflecting end-stage uh, liver disease. So he needed a liver transplant soon. That's a very high-risk uh, type of, of liver transplant. So I met with his parents. We explained this all. Um, <clears throat> there's a high risk of mortality when you do a liver transplant at such a young age and then such a small a baby. Part of the problem is getting a donor small enough. But we were fortunate to have another a donor. Donor stories are always horrific. They're always bad stories. You know, things like either crib death or uh, parental abuse or something, uh, some horrible accident that took the life of the child. But we were able to have a uh, liver offered to us from a very small uh, donor who wasn't much bigger than, uh, he was a little bit bigger than, 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 than Zenny was. Zenny was so tiny. I can tell you I've done uh, one other liver transplant in a child that young and that small and it didn't turn out well. So of course, uh, it was concerning. They, everybody knew this was high risk. Anyway, we went ahead and did the, the liver transplant. It went well. Uh, I didn't uh, have enough room to close the whole belly. You don't want to ever close the belly too tight over a liver because you cut off the blood supply to it and it dies. So I used mesh and I put in a big piece of uh, Gore-Tex mesh over his belly to keep his belly uh, open. And over the next couple of months I gradually tightened that up as he grew and as his liver worked. So his parents were just thrilled. This was their first child. In fact, all children with this particular condition, it's always the first child. Now we can treat it so that it doesn't recur in repeated pregnancies. But anyway, I get a, a, a Christmas card every year from this family with a picture of Zene, who's growing now, and now he's four years old. and. Uh, you know what? It's a fantastic thing to get that Christmas card. It's one of my favorite Christmas cards. Uh, you can imagine how fun that is to see this little guy growing up and doing well. He would have been dead uh, without a new liver. I mean, for sure. You can't live without a liver that works. And uh, So that's just one little uh, vignette. Uh, I'd like to keep in touch with those uh, parents. They're kind enough to uh, 
send me a Christmas card every year. So that is the thrill of, of doing uh, liver transplants. It is a, a fantastic field. I knew as a medical student that uh, this would be exciting, but as, um, even as a medical student at Cornell, I was at New York Hospital, I remember going on pediatric rounds and hearing this kid screaming from a room, and I said, you know, what's wrong with him? Oh, he's got liver failure, and he has metabolic bone disease, and every time he moves, his bones break, and it's horribly painful to us. Oh, my gosh, what a horrible existence. So, uh, if you're around, if you get exposed to liver disease, you know that it is a profound uh, disease that is mortal, and so liver transplantation really offered new hope to people with liver failure. So I considered myself very, very fortunate to uh, go into liver transplantation, and it's been a very interesting ride, and uh, I love this field. It's, uh, some people call it a Lazarus operation. I think most of you probably know the story of Lazarus. It's a story of resurrection, and uh, seeing somebody in liver failure get a liver transplant, it is as close to a resurrection experience as, as we see in, in medicine, I think. So I think there's no question that that uh, dramatic turnaround uh, greatly appeals to me, it appealed to me when I went into the field, it still does. So. Um, that's been a privilege and an honor to be to be a part of it. And so, as I think we all know, life is a precious gift uh, from God, and it's it's a marvelous thing to be able to observe His creative ingenuity, uh, His majesty, and His goodness. And uh, God is also a healer of His people, and so to participate as a physician in His love and care for His people is a high calling and a great honor. Uh, so as a follower of Christ, how do I learn and practice medicine in a God-honoring and a God-fearing manner? That's a lifelong pursuit. I am still learning that. I still make plenty of mistakes. I'm on a learning curve filled with lessons and failures and, and opportunities for growth. So I thought I would try to continue to keep this uh, conversation with you personal because uh, I think that's what I can share with you that's, that's unique. I thought I'd share with you some of the influences in, in my life early on that influenced how I saw medicine. I've had a number of excellent mentors. One of them was my uncle. His name was Bill Keyswetter, and he was the chief of pediatric surgery at Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. He developed an operation for imperforate anus, so it was always embarrassing for him to tell people what he did at the dinner table. <laughs> But he invited me to go on rounds with him when I was a college student and applying to a medical school. And as you may know, surgeons have, an have a reputation for having out-of-control egos, and, and uh, that certainly has been the stereotype of, of the uh, surgeon, which uh, most stereotypes have some truth to them, yeah. of course. So he took me on uh, rounds with him, put on his white coat, we left his office, and he went to the ICU, and he was showing me a little baby in a crib, and her mother was there. And so he went to the mother and he said, you know, I just want you to know that this baby's success is a result of God's mercy. It was not uh, any surgeon who should take the primary credit for this. And she uh, nodded and said, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, that said a lot to me. It said something, of course, to that mother uh, as well. But just the act of giving uh, credit to God for his healing in uh, surgery, I think, uh, spoke a lot to me in my early development, uh, thinking about how you communicate with the patients and what you say about your role in their care. 
I also, um, I was staying with my uncle at his house, and I had the opportunity, actually several years later after he had died, to um, visit my aunt, and she uh, let me in her bedroom, and I saw this little letter on his wall. It was a framed letter that he had received from Howard Kelly. I don't know how many of you know of Howard Kelly or the history of Johns Hopkins uh, University, but Johns Hopkins was, there's a famous painting actually of the founding four of, of Johns Hopkins that probably many of you have seen, and in that, anybody know who's in that painting? Osler, Kelly, um, the other two. Okay. The, other, the third one is a surgeon, Halstead, and the fourth is a pathologist. Anybody for that one? Clostridium welchi, Welch. Uh, so those are the four big leaders that were found at Johns Hopkins. Kelly was considered uh, probably the technically best surgeon of that group. Uh, he was apparently very gifted technically. He was also a committed Christian who was very outspoken and uh, would do evangelistic rallies, apparently, in, in uh, Baltimore. He also was an equally good botanist and a biologist. Uh, he had a collection at his house that was, a, he had biologic specimens from around the world, and he was just as well published in biology as he was in, in medicine. He wrote a book about that thick called The Vermiform Appendix a detailed uh, monologue on, or monograph on the, the appendix. And he's really responsible. He, he was working before general surgery and OBGYN separated. So he did a lot of pelvic surgery, female uh, surgery in women, and uh, was really responsible for a, a lot of the developments in OBGYN surgery. Anyway, he was a committed Christian, and this letter to my uncle's uh, you know, I, I wish I had a copy of, uh, of the letter, but I don't. But it basically said um, to my uncle that uh, you will, you're privileged to be entering uh, this field and to, that, that God will use uh, your life to benefit uh, many as you honor him. Anyway, the, the basic message was he was sort of conferring a blessing, uh, mm. if you will, on, on my uncle uh, in his life which he then pursued in pediatric surgery. So I feel like I'm a third generation, if you will, that, uh, that Kelly passed on that heritage to my uncle and my uncle passed it on uh, to me. And I think, you know, to have mentors and, and individuals that you can look to who have been uh, really uh, excellent examples of living out their faith in, in unique and different ways, of course, but uh, nevertheless, that is a, a, a wonderful heritage that we have. So I encourage you to look for good mentors uh, who exemplify the qualities that, that uh, you would like to try to incorporate into your own uh, life as a, a physician. I'm going to tell you next about a difficult experience I had as a, a liver transplant, a very difficult experience, because uh, I want to go into this uh, topic of how we deal with uh, failure. Um, I trained here in, in uh, general surgery, as far mentioned, and I, because of my background in immunology that I kind of brought here and uh, my interest in surgery, I, wanted, I, I chose uh, transplant surgery. I was able to participate in the, the first liver transplant at Duke as a resident. Uh, Dr. Bollinger asked me to participate, and, and uh, I saw them start the liver transplant program, and, and I decided 
I wanted to go elsewhere to do a fellowship and get as much intense exposure to uh, transplantation, in particular liver transplantation, as possible, because I saw how difficult it was and how um, intensive training in something would probably be a real leg up, uh, a real benefit uh, to me. So I, I went off to a University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, where Dr. Belzer was the chair. He had just invented UW Solution, University of Wisconsin Solution. It's still used pretty universally in the world for organ preservation. This is a very exciting time in, in that transplantation. We were just developing a lot of new things that come through the pipelines. It was a constant change and in innovation. And I was trained there by a student of my uncle, Bill Keyswinner. He was a pediatric surgeon who had done both pediatric surgery training at Pittsburgh with my uncle and liver transplant training with Dr. Tom Starzl, who was sort of the founder of liver transplantation in this country. So I did a very arduous uh, two-year fellowship there and then was asked to join the faculty at the uh, University of Wisconsin, which I accepted. <clears throat> so after you know seven years as a resident and, and research fellow at Duke and two years as a fellow, I'm, I'm nine years out of medical school now and I'm getting my first job. Well, I can tell you that my ambition was to do my first 100 <coughs> liver transplants without a mortality. I thought that's a, that's a good goal. I mean, the mortality was you know, about 30% uh, then, so it was probably a totally unrealistic goal, but nevertheless, <laughs> I wanted to get started successfully. <laughs> and as often happens in surgery, I had a battlefield promotion, meaning that I was on call and the uh, head of liver transplant program, Mindy Kalila, was out of town, so I, the next case was my case. It was an exceptionally difficult case. The patient had a massive abdominal wall hematoma, from a paracentesis that had gone awry and they'd hit the inferior epigastric artery and so she had a tense uh, hematoma in her abdominal wall and we went to the operating room anyway as we were wont to do in those days because this was early in the experience of liver transplantation. So suffice it to say that many, many hours later and many, many units of blood later, I knew that this was a very difficult situation to get out of alive and I had to go talk to that husband and tell him that although she was stable, uh, she was not doing well, and uh, I was very concerned that this would not have a good outcome. And then about eight hours later, I had to go back and tell him that she had just died. And I can still remember his words. Um, her name was Gert, and he just said, oh, Gert, and he just rocked back and forth, and he was just distraught. I can tell you that's one of the most difficult things emotionally for me to deal with. Uh, there's nothing as bad as uh, losing a patient as a result of your operation. Now, yes, she had a mortal disease and she would have died probably within weeks uh, if she hadn't had a liver transplant, but nevertheless, she died a little faster because of me. And uh, that's a very humbling and sobering thing, especially when it's your first liver transplant as an attending. So I thought I would just uh, tell you what it's like because I think that's maybe a useful thing for you to hear what it's like to have complications. You know, every doctor has complications, but in surgery it's a little bit more obvious that they're your own complication. It's not quite as easy to blame somebody else or blame the patient or blame the drug or whatever else uh, you can blame. Um, <clears throat> when your patient dies either on the table or shortly thereafter. 
it's a little bit hard not to at least participate in, in the uh, blame for that. And how do we deal with that uh, psychologically? Um, I'd like to also compare this uh, to uh, well, what we have in, in surgery as an institution is we have a morbidity and mortality conference where we review all of these uh, problems. It is a, a, a regulatory requirement of every uh, surgery program <coughs> to have a M&M uh, conference. Probably some of you, or if not all of you, have participated in those conferences. And, and the, at those conferences we discuss, we, we can't discuss every complication or death, but uh, basically major issues are, are discussed, particularly ones that are instructive. And the whole goal of that conference is to state exactly what happened in complete uh, transparency and detail and to go over why it happened. Was this a technical failure? Was this an error in judgment? We were operating on the wrong patient? Uh, was this a um, something that could, would have happened anyway, very difficult uh, to avoid uh, and, and so forth? There are enormous uh, analogies in my mind to that conference and uh, the notion of, of uh, confession <laughs> that happens in church, uh, where we basically tell God the truth about us, and whatever that uh, truth is, however it, it looks. And so I find that conference an important, uh, it, that's, that's why it's, uh, insurgents consider it important, because it's really important when you're given the authority to cut people open and, do very invasive procedures that you're held accountable for that by also mm. uh, telling the exact truth about uh, what you did, what went wrong, and why, and discussing it with your colleagues who then have the opportunity to give you their feedback and their critique. So I think that type of honesty is critical uh, for uh, surgery. It is critical that surgeons are honest uh, with each other and honest with themselves. And of course, that carries over, I think, into our spiritual lives too. Mm -hmm. That we're uh, honest uh, before God, and uh, that's why we're also in community with each other. That we're honest uh, with each other when we uh, fail or have uh, complications or, or mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, just to return to that particular uh, complication, um, I don't have a well-formulated answer as to how a, a surgeon deals with. Uh, loss of a patient. It, it is a huge insult, uh, obviously, and I think that we re recover from that by, uh, well, there's certainly the rationale for it, it being a necessary procedure. The patient is going to die without it, but I think that um, we also learn from those things. So <coughs> I, I have learned a great deal by attending uh, M&M conferences. We learn from our own mistakes, and we also learn from the mistakes of others how to do things better. I mean, going to those conferences is one of the things that drove me to go do the best fellowship available in the United States to train. And um, it's driven me to want to be a better liver surgeon, to learn more about who to operate on. Uh, so we have, since that time, learned, learned a great deal about how to select patients appropriately, appropriately and how to manage them intraoperatively better. So we're, we're a lot better now. Now we have about 94% survival of one year. Back when I was a fellow, we had about 70% survival. So, you know, there's a, we learn from our mistakes in, in medicine, and uh, when we face them squarely and honestly, there's opportunity for improvement. On the psychological level, I guess we, we benefit by having a supportive community, and, and I think surgeons are there to encourage each other. So we, we all know how painful it is to have either a complication or especially a death. 
but uh, we're there to help each other uh, deal with that and, and uh, give one another the courage to uh, keep going uh, because it is a necessary thing to help people and an overall on the balance uh, surgery helps a lot more people than it than it hurts but when we hurt somebody we're responsible for uh, being honest and open about it and uh, by the way that is also a closed conference the M&M conference it is not open to the legal uh, review or participation so just a, a comparison between I think um, complications and uh, the, the M&M conference and confession I think um, has been at least meaningful to me so just a few thoughts on spiritual formation for healthcare professionals I came across this quote by uh, Dr. Ken Lim, who's at uh, Mass General, he's an MD-PhD, a very successful physician scientist at Mass General, and, and uh, he's written an article in, in uh, a publication of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, uh, the last uh, issue. He said, spiritual formation is about our continuing response to God's grace and the Holy Spirit's power to conform us into Christ-likeness. I thought that's an excellent uh, definition of what uh, spiritual formation is about. And uh, what a privilege it is to be able to consider that uh, question, as uh, many of you are doing for a whole year or, or more, as I understand it. I thought I'd make a, just a few comments about um, one of the challenges that we face in this field. Uh, you know, the people that go into medicine are generally at the top of their class, which means that you're a conscientious person, you're meticulous, you're careful. You hate making mistakes. We hate making mistakes. Say we instead, not instead of you. So those are some of our personal qualities. The downside of those qualities, however, we tend to be inflexible. We tend to be impatient. We expect things to run right. And we get downright annoyed when things don't happen correctly. Or uh, we're not very merciful uh, either toward ourselves or toward other people. So that create our, our inherent uh, qualities create some difficulties, don't they? Sometimes getting along with other people, that can translate into marriages. How do you get along with your spouse? I know more than a few surgeons who've been married many times, and that's because their spouse is never good enough. There's always something wrong with that person. Go figure. <laughs> we also have problems with the burnout. Uh, we like to do our job really well, we're conscientious, and so if you work too hard too long and you don't take a break and, and don't have other outlets, uh, that can lead to significant burnout. Um, as far as I know, and I've been asked this many times, and they're always giving you these surveys, uh, I have not experienced burnout. Uh, I think the reasons are, I think that uh, there are a variety of protections that I've had around me, I, I think, uh, and I've probably been in among the most intense uh, circumstances medically that I'm aware of. I mean, the surgical house staff uh, here, back under Dr. Saviston, uh, was legendary, as, as Farr mentioned in his introduction. We, I did work 120 hours a week. Notorious. Notorious. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 120 hours a week of work was a lot. Uh, many, many, many nights of basically no sleep and that tends to make you short-tempered and so forth. Um, I think some of the uh, saving graces for me were, were a, a fantastic wife who uh, picked me up off the ground and put me back on my feet uh, 
repeatedly. So a very understanding and merciful uh, wife. Uh, I am not married to another career professional. I have great respect for physician-physician marriages, which I, I cannot imagine the stress. Um, I also happen to go into maybe, maybe one of the most stressful uh, medical fields. There are not too many doctors that work 120 hours uh, a week. And liver transplant is among the most uh, demanding. I was attracted to that, and you know we all have different personalities and different gifts. Uh, liver transplantation at the time I was going into it could only be done by a handful of surgeons. It was the technically most demanding operation in all of surgery, and so you know there's some kind of positive minus uh, magnetic attraction to me <laughs> to want to do that. Now I wonder if I wasn't crazy, and perhaps I I was, but uh, nevertheless. We've evolved, uh, and we can do that procedure quite well now. And I've trained more than 50 uh, liver transplant surgeons to do that procedure safely. But uh, I think we're all unique. Uh, that was uniquely attractive to me at the time, and I'm grateful that I was able to, to do that and still uh, do it. But uh, probably it's good to pick something that fits your personality and your gift set uh, as you make those choices. Um, Another thing that has uh, helped me along the way are the spiritual disciplines. Um, I don't know if, if some of you have read the book by Richard Foster on the uh, spiritual disciplines. He goes through them very systematically and, and, and effectively. But as a college student, I was told uh, by uh, you know wise people, I think, that you should choose now what kind of habits you form because the habits you live your life by now are going to be the habits that continue for the rest of your life. So don't think you're going to become a different person down the road than you are right now. Be careful as you set up those habits. And those habits uh, include, as, as Christ followers, uh, Bible reading and scripture memorization and prayer daily. And uh, it includes being part of an active uh, part of a, a fellowship of other believers and accountability to them. So I would say I would give those disciplines a great deal of credit for my avoiding burnout and maintaining perspective on life because uh, we have a much bigger perspective than just surgery or just liver transplant or just whatever your uh, academic uh, discipline is. And we're called to a much bigger picture and we also have a little bit of perspective on how unimportant uh, we really are in the big picture. Um, I was fortunate to have a, a father who probably loved Jesus more than any man I have ever known. And he, at the end of every conversation, would ask me, are you spending time with the Lord? Are you uh, reading the Bible and praying every day? And I, frankly, I got annoyed at him. because <laughs> It really was about every conversation I ever had with him. And um, wow. I just thought, why do you keep asking me that? You know what I'm doing. I've answered you that. But he, he would always ask me that. And um, I'm very grateful for that because uh, he cared about me. Um, yeah, he, he would make the point that uh, a relationship or time spent with the Lord is like any relationship. Little time spent with a person leads to a poor relationship. Much time with the Lord leads to a, a strong relationship. So... Uh, even when I was tired, I tried to uh, maintain that relationship. 
although not as well as one man I know. I know Dr. Bill Wood, who's the former chair of surgery at Emory. He told me just a couple of years ago that since age 14, he has had a quiet time, a time with the Lord, every morning at 5 a.m., and he has never missed it in a, a single day since he was 14. I'm not quite that compulsive. Wow. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> but I think the, the spiritual disciplines are there uh, to be a help uh, to us in, in our, our uh, life and, and, and the practical uh, living of our, our lives. At the same time, I would also say that uh, we know that we're not saved by our own disciplines and those uh, we are saved by grace and God is merciful and he picks us up uh, when we are down, and it's only His uh, saving grace, that, not our own uh, discipline, that uh, saves us. So I'd be just quick to add that uh, disclaimer about the spiritual disciplines. At the same time, it's it's a combination, isn't it? Just we work out our salvation uh, with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in us. So it's that uh, tension and um, paradox that we don't quite understand. So we should try as hard as we can to enter the kingdom of heaven knowing that it's actually God who gets us there. Um, another mentor that I had in my life who was influential was uh, Archie Fletcher. Archie was a, a general surgeon, general anthoracic surgeon who trained at Columbia Presbyterian. He was also a Princeton grad. Uh, so we had a couple of things in, in common. But uh, as a fourth year medical school, uh, student, I uh, received a Reader's Digest uh, fellowship and was able to uh, visit his hospital in Nepal and work there for two months uh, under his uh, leadership. Archie had spent 29 years uh, developing Mirage Medical Center in India, a Christian uh, medical center. Uh, he and his wife uh, had six, uh, six children, uh, but after retiring from uh, Mirage Medical Center after 29 years, he went to Seattle and was working in an emergency room at the uh, University of Washington, Seattle. He said, you know, there are lots of doctors that would do this. Why don't I go back to the mission field? So he went two years to the Cameroon as a missionary surgeon. And then he was reassigned to Nepal. And he was in his, I think, his second year learning Nepali language and serving there. So an incredibly motivated uh, surgeon to just use his gifts to uh, serve in, in whatever way he could. But what I observed uh, that I thought was outstanding in him was that he, he treated everyone in that hospital, patients, nursing staff, administrative staff, and other physicians with unbelievable respect. There's no question that he was the most accomplished person in the place, and he was kind of brilliant in every way, and yet he treated everyone uh, from the top to the bottom with uh, ultimate uh, respect uh, and you know, that's kind of said a lot to me. Yeah, wonderful. Kind of the uh, opposite of the, the mash kind of image of the thoracic surgeon <laughs> whose ego is out of control and uh, throwing instruments and so forth. I remember we were operating one time and the lights went out in the operating room. <laughs> that's a little disconcerting when you got the chest open and you were working on the back of the spine. This was a patient with Potts disease of the spine, which is TB of the spine and a, a severe kyphosis, and he was doing a bone graft from the iliac crest. Uh, it's not, I'm trying to stick that bone graft into the vertebral body, and so we pulled out flashlights, and I remember pulling the flashlight <laughs> while he worked. 
So he was, you know, cool as a cucumber and just uh, handled that so well and was able to, to finish the operation. But um, anyway, I just learned from observing his uh, character, I think. Um, I thought I'd just uh, close here with uh, just a few other examples of, of challenges from my um, my transplant practice and research practice. Um, my first, uh, I, I did the first living donor liver transplant in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, living donor uh, liver transplant means that you have a living donor who volunteers to give part of their liver to the recipient and needs one. And so we have to do a uh, hemihepatectomy, take out half the liver of, of the donor and give it. A, it's a big operation to take out half the liver. It's a bloody operation usually, and it's a high risk operation. And so that's uh, not something that uh, you take lightly. And it's, particularly because the donor doesn't need surgery, right? They're, they're a healthy person. And so you're going to you know, inflict a very large operation on them. And the goal is to do it without them needing a blood transfusion because there are side effects of blood transfusions. And if you can avoid it, you should avoid a, a blood transfusion. So um, I did uh, start the liver, living donor liver transplant program at the uh, University of Wisconsin. And it went well, but I can assure you that it was uh, plenty stressful. Mm -hmm. um, I made some mistakes along the way. Uh, the first mistake that I'll share with you is when I showed up for the first living donor, they, I looked at the scrub nurse and I'd never seen them before. I said, have you ever done a liver transplant? And they said, no. And so I took them aside and I said, you know, I respect that you may be an excellent uh, scrub nurse, but you and I have never worked together. And I I don't think this is an appropriate choice. And so I went out and spoke to the charge nurse and I said, you know, I'm just not comfortable doing this operation. Um, would you please give me another scrub nurse who's done liver transplants with me before? And so they did. I got called to the, uh, for, to the uh, behavior police and was uh, chewed out for complaining about that scrub nurse. So, you know, I can tell you that Life is tough sometimes. <laughs> I think I did the right thing, but that was painful.